The Lead Live is presented by Pint and Plow Brewing Company. Texas Hill Country Advisors. With support from K-Pub. Peterson Health. And Kirk County Abstract and Title Company. And now, from Pint and Plow on Clay Street in downtown Kerrville, this is the Lead Live with Lewis Hamster. Good morning. We're halfway there. We've made it. This was not the music I was expecting to play. I always try to find something cheesy to start the show off with, but uh, here we are. Happy Wednesday. We're halfway through the week. Uh, one day closer to the massive uh, lighted Christmas parade brought to you by the great and powerful and wizened George Eichner. Uh, looking forward to that on, uh, on, on Saturday, 6 o'clock. Well, Bella, will you be there? I don't need no nope. All right. All right. Bella's here. She's not on the show today. We have Tom Fox on the show today. He's going to join us here in just a quick second here. He's sitting to the left of me. Um, by the way, let me switch over to my new... I totally blew this. Let me switch over to my new... There it is. Look at this. Uh, the new Welcome Home beer is available here at Pint and Plow. Jeremy described it as... Hazy. I can't. Uh, I can't really drink beer anymore, so I don't really know. So I'm just gonna take his word for it. It looks good though. It looks delightful. This might be. He's making one with apples. He said. So there you go. Uh, looks looks great though. This will be our setup for the day. Um, a couple of things we're working on today. Uh, if you caught the uh, newsletter today, there's so much going on. Yesterday was an interesting meeting, and as I said to you yesterday, uh, I predicted it. I hate to be that guy that says, oh, oh I, this is what I said. But it was really that hard to predict, quite frankly. It was, it was that the city needs to put in new radios for the police and fire department, which is a common problem. I mean, if you look at the deferred maintenance that are uh, out there, I mean, it's, in, it's incredible how much deferred maintenance has happened in the city. And, and, and this is one of the issues I think that's going to happen in Texas is that there's been a lot of sort of, you know, belt tightening because you don't want to raise taxes. You're really afraid of that situation. And now it's the, the bill has come and things are growing and people are coming. Um, and now you've got things that are antiquated, like your radio system. And so yesterday during um, the city council meeting, Chief Chris McCall of the police department and Chief Eric Maloney of the fire department, who, by the way, will be on the show on Monday to teach us how not to burn our houses down for for the holidays, um, specifically when it comes to frying turkeys, one of the most dangerous things you could do. I'm talking about compliance, by the way. We're going to talk to Tom about that. He's probably got some ideas about that. Don't burn your house down for Thanksgiving. But uh, the, the chiefs went to the city council yesterday, and they said, listen, here's the deal. You cannot, we cannot operate safely anymore with these radios. We cannot go into, the, into Peterson Regional Medical Center. 
and communicate. We cannot go into HEB. We cannot go into Lowe's, Home Depot, any of the big box stores. We have no radio uh, coverage in there. Um, and this is a VHF band, so there's multiple channels, right? And so you buy certain you know, amounts of spectrum, and then you, and then you broadcast over those channels. One of those channels doesn't even work. So in a major event like they had the other day or last week, last month with over at the uh, airport with the drag racing situation, they couldn't communicate uh, over different different channels. They had one channel for all traffic, and this has been a consistent problem that they've had for quite some time. So what they want to go to is a trunked, which means they can they can kind of get multiple channels into one unit, uh, seven hundred megahertz frequency, which is for pu- public safety. And uh, the bill is going to be three and a half, probably three and a half million dollars, which I think is probably a good deal. Honestly, I think they probably should include all of the city uh, stuff in that, right? Put it in the, uh, put it into the uh, uh, streets. Maybe get K-Pub involved, because at some point, you know, like we had in the winter, we had a cross sort of a, a cross, you know, a cross department. Uh, event where you had multiple agencies having to work together to identify a problem, you know, and hopefully, knock on wood, we don't have another winter storm like we had this last year because that would be absolutely wretched. So, so that's going to be the thing they're going to have to focus on for the next uh, uh, next few days, um, or that's going to be the bill that EA Hoppy and his crew is going to have to figure out how to pay. And uh, good luck th- on that. Uh, K-Pub is meeting right now as we speak, to, speaking of K-Pub, uh, and I, I, last night I discovered this, you know, you ever have those moments where you just like, you lose track of time? I felt really bad. I call, I texted Allison Boucher last night. Uh, it was like, I thought it was 8.45. I was like, man, it's kind of late. Maybe let's do it. It was 9.45 because I lo- totally lost track of time because I had questions about this, this, um, this agenda item. So K-Pub basically was ERCOT. We know ERCOT, right? They, um, they reached out. They said, well, listen, here's the deal. If you pay us this amount of money, we will reduce your payments, uh, b- what you incurred during the storm. So K-Pub was billed like an extra $4.7 million, right? They were in two markets, right? And so during this, this storm, I'm trying to explain this to the best of my ability, which is limited. I admit it. There's things I just don't understand. And electricity is one of them I just don't understand. But K-Pub was billed $4.7 million. They were okay on one side of, of it where they had fixed prices set, so they couldn't, they couldn't get really gouged. With those providers that didn't have those fixed prices, man, they really got hammered. So you, K-Pub was planning to um, borrow money at five and a half, or 5.2% to pay this down. Right, because this was an unattended. This is an un- this was an unbudgeted, you know, deal. So the legislator then approved a securities plan that would allow the utilities to pay into ERCOT, and then ERCOT would say then give them sort of like a refund on the savings. But then, like these engineering groups are like going, mm, are these consultants saying that's not really a good deal? You might as well just stay out there and just borrow the money and pay it there. You're not gonna. It's not gonna help. And at least fifty-eight utility boards and municipally owned utilities have said. Mm, yeah, they're right. We're not. We're not going. We're not going to be in this plan. So, I mean, that's a stinging rebuke of the legislature saying you're not helping us. You're actually. You're actually creating more uncertainty for us and potentially more problems down the road. So, K-Pub's recommendation from their consultant is to to opt out of this deal with ERCOT, 
and and go out their own way and borrow the money. Um, the Kerrville Kerr County Airport will meet today, or meeting right now as we speak. Um, they're not going to talk about anything about that incident that happened, um, which I, I understand. That's already in litigation. Uh, Chip Roy um, is seeking another term in office. And I got to tell you, I dig, I dug deep into this yesterday. I, I spent a lot of time on this yesterday afternoon looking at his record lately. So apparently he got into a fight with Kevin McCarthy. It's interesting when you know two people and they get into a fight. Like, I know K-Mac. I've met him many times, and I've met Chip Roy many times. And I'm like, hmm, I don't know who'd win that fight. Like, if you put them close, to, close together. McCarthy's pretty, he's pretty fit for a guy of his age. Chip Roy, he, he's, he drinks a lot of large 44-ounce sodas. So I don't know who's going to win that one. But, uh, but he and K-Mac got into it. And apparently Chip Roy said, I have to go back and explain to my constituents what, you know, what you've done. Uh, and this is referring to the trillion dollar, the trillion dollar uh, infrastructure plan. McCarthy went back and says, well, I got to explain to my constituents what you've done. But he didn't really say what it was. But what he was saying, I think, wink, wink, was that, hey, you know what? You voted, you voted not to overturn the election, which has been a problem for Roy. Because he was one of those Republicans that said, well, I'm not going to object to the, the 2020 results, right? And then he got absolutely crucified by President Trump. Uh, Roy made an effort to um, get basically uh, be, to be a leader in the GOP. And Trump came out and said, um, here's what Trump said. Uh, can't imagine Republican House members would go with Chip Roy. He has not been done a great job and will probably be successfully primaried in his own district. Um, and then and then he was pushing for Trump was pushing for at least Stefnik of uh, New York over over Roy. So I went back and looked at his I looked at his record. Right. And it's interesting if you think about it for just a quick second here. He's he's gone with Republican. Well, he's gone with the majority in the House on several occasions, investing in Main Street, Cyber Awareness Acts, um, a, a veteran entrepreneurial program. Uh, but then there's some cases where like, well, then he's then uh, voted like with the Republican majority or a Republican bloc, you know, in a unified vote against several things that ended up passing. One of them was protecting older job applicants. Um, some of them said it was too too far meddling. This is one that the Republicans got a lot of criticism for, which is Family Violence Prevention and Services Improvement Act. Uh, and then a nursing, uh, one that would protected women uh, who needed to nurse. Uh, and, that, and the Republicans, that was actually a bipartisan passage, but a lot of Republicans voted against it. But then there were some cases where Roy just, he went with a small minority of people in objecting to things that are kind of head scratchers, Right. When I talk about a majority, less than 20% of the members vote, voted for this, right, or voted against something like this. He voted against protecting America's first responders. He was one of the only three that voted against it. This was a one that came out of the Senate by Chuck Grassley, where it basically expanded this 1968 bill that would give payments to public safety officers who had been either permanently or totally disabled due to the uh, personal injuries um, sustained, uh, you know, in the line of duty, not just police officers but public public you know uh first responders this one is another head scratcher because we just had this conversation here in kerrville two weeks ago about the importance of air mobility and the air air innovation that's going to happen here uh in texas right and and this was electric vehicles that are going to be you know flying 
Uh, and basically the government says, look, we need to figure out what this is going to look like, right? Because this is the Wild West, right? When you look at the impact of electric cars and you look at the impact of electric vehicles uh, in general, including aviation, there's no real plan. So this is directed to Department of Transportation to establish a working group to look at the regulations. Chip Roy was only one of 41 that voted against this. Like, it makes no sense. And we just talked about the importance of this here in the Hill Country. Um, and then this was another one was a head-scratcher. This was written by a Texas Democrat, and it was to protect basically the Gulf Coast when they have hazardous areas uh, and you have a local project, it's in a hazardous area, suddenly you get hit by a storm, and that hazardous project has been then become another hazard, so you don't lose the funding for that, and Chip Roy is one of 16 that voted against this. Any voting on, on Native American stuff, he voted against. A small minority voted against these things, uh, including um, these very, very, one of them was he voted against giving 17 acres of land to the Catawaba Indian Nation in North Carolina. It does allow for gaming on the land. So there you go. I don't know. I don't get it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand uh, what, what's going on. And then, you know, it's funny. I, I, I'm not making this up. He, he put out this thing. Here's my thing from today. This was literally his, this is on his website. Uh, this is on his ads. Let me see if I can remember how to do this. Uh, this, is the, this is the look that he has on his ads. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. I mean, Chip, why are you so angry? You're, you're kind of a happy-go-lucky guy from what I can remember. Anyway, I have more important things to talk about. I have Tom Fox here. Uh, he runs the Compliance Podcast Network. I first met Tom um, a few weeks ago. We were at that marvelous conversation with the uh, Baltimore police officer, Ed Gillespie. That was one of the – was, and, and actually what was interesting was you were doing a podcast, Tom, and then, like, you, me, Toby Appleton, and Ed got into a conversation that was probably worthy of a podcast, too. But we just didn't have enough microphones. <laughs> Absolutely. I it, mean, that was fun. It was a ton of fun. I learned a lot. And uh, so many uh, ideas and revelations came to me just listening to you guys talk that uh, I absolutely wish we could have captured that for a second pod. I, I think the one thing that I was um, – if you didn't miss – you missed that particular um, – uh, event ed gillespie is this really remarkable um uh, police officer from baltimore he's an educator he's highly educated but he's also a poet and and tom during his podcast and i was starting to think about this myself but he hit it right in the head he's like you remind me of a world war one poet because his poetry was i mean it was it was harsh you know there was some tough there's some tough language in there not like vulgarity but just like the sceneries that he, the scene he was painting at times where you'd find a body or something along those lines. What was your, tell me your, your takeaway from that event. So I'm a huge fan of the war poets and uh, in researching uh, for the podcast, it really struck me in reading some of his poetry. The only other place I'd read that was in the war poets. Yeah. And he started doing the poetry as part of a therapy for PTSD. Mm -hmm. And although we didn't call it PTSD in 1917, uh, I think these guys were doing the same thing yeah. uh, back then, and it just seemed to me to be just a direct line. But the, the point you hit on, uh, 
uh, Lewis on the violence mm -hmm. that they both captured in the poetry. And that was, uh, for Ed, a day-to-day -day experience. Yeah. And he talks a lot about being desensitized, you know, by that and, uh, and, and, and having to kind of his wife coming to him and saying, you know, you need to you need to rein that back in. You know, you need to, you need to have some humanity, basically, at this point. So, uh, absolutely. He did. It was um, he told us the story where he went in. Uh, a man had been murdered and had been shot in the head uh, with all the attendant gore. And his first thought was, mm, I'm going to be late for dinner. Yeah, right. I'm going to I'm going to be. I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, just be not available at that point, you know, because I got to deal with this mess. You right. Know? I don't care about that someone's dead. I got a mess. I got to clean up. You know. Um, Tom, you you came here, uh, if I remember correctly. Again, your your history in the Hill Country started where? Tell me again. My history in the Hill Country started in 1967 when I attended Camp Stewart. Okay. And the second year was 1968. I absolutely fell in love with the Texas Hill Country. Right. And uh, vowed that if I ever had the chance to move here, I would. Uh, so I did in April. And you, um, you're, you're an attorney by trade, but you've been doing this compliance podcast. You, you have a very specific area of, 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 of practice, essentially. But tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing. So um, I uh, <clears throat> practice in an area called compliance, and it was really anti-corruption compliance. There's a U.S. law that prevents U.S. companies from engaging in bribery and corruption outside the United States. Uh, from there, I expanded to broader areas of compliance, anti-money laundering, export control, import control, antitrust compliance. Really, any time there's a national law mm. that uh, businesses have to comply with, I help them do that by setting out uh, setting up policies and procedures. Right. And in in the podcasting, how did you get into that? What was your thinking about that? Because you I mean you've got a pretty big network of, of shows. Right. So two reasons. Uh, one, I started podcasting in uh, 2013 as an extension of blogging. Mm -hmm. it just seemed to me to be a natural extension. And then right. I had the idea for the network about uh, 2016 or 2017. I realized that it's it's a hyper technical area, even of the law, and I was never going to have big numbers. So my vision was to have 100 shows yeah. about compliance, and that would aggregate some uh, pretty big numbers. And that's what I'm moving towards. Right. The. Um the, the different things that you offer, I mean, I'm just looking at this. I mean, a lot of it is about ethics, um, you know, getting into the weeds, as you said. One of yours is there. I mean, uh, but what are some of the other ones that you have? And I'm going to show the website here so people can see what I'm talking about. This is, this is the Compliance Podcast Network, and uh, you've got here. How many shows now are you, are you working on? So uh, in the network, we have 80 shows total now, 40 of those shows. I either host or produce. Okay. So it does keep me busy, but I try yeah. to shake it and bake it in all different shapes and forms. Shakespeare in compliance, King Arthur in compliance, <laughs> sports in compliance, great women in compliance, uh, ethics experts, the FCPA compliance report, uh, innovation in compliance. As you mentioned, uh, compliance into the weeds. We have a round table that just won a big award uh, for the best talk show. Oh, wow. uh, everything compliance. Um, I look at data privacy and data protection on in GDPR across the pond. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a pretty wide variety, and I do special series. Uh, I got another award for a series on looking back on 9/11. I did a retrospective the week of 9/11. Yeah, right. Looking back to 20 years, and that was a, a very personal project for me to do. And 
Uh, I uh, when I got here, I looked around and there was no Hill Country podcast. There was no Hill Country podcast. So I've started the Hill Country podcast, mm-hmm. and I've had a chance to interview you and several others in the Hill Country community. Right. And I just want to tell the stories of the people, places, and things in the Texas Hill Country in the podcast format. Well, and the, and the thing about it is, is there's so many fascinating stories to tell. I'm just looking at all these things. Like I have so many questions here. I mean, um, this is such a fascinating. Like you said, it's a deep. It's a deep dive into an area that's not really fully understood at times either, you know. And so for the lay person, it may not, there may, but, you know, if I just wanted to listen to something to get a better idea of what I'm, what you're about, what would be the, where would I start on on this? Uh, The first two I would suggest are the FCPA Compliance Report, which publishes every Monday at 6 a.m. It's a broad look into anti-corruption compliance. Okay. And then innovation in compliance, and although the word compliance is in the title, it's really about innovation. Right. And I love talking to innovators and entrepreneurs who uh, look at the same thing you and I look at uh, for 30 minutes, and they see a completely different answer. Right. All of my podcasts, I'm in the B2B space, so these are aimed at uh, businesses. Right. So I try to drive compliance to fight the international scourge of bribery and corruption through better business practices. And that's a huge issue for many countries, you know, yes. and for the United States to deal with those countries. I remember I, we mentioned, I mentioned the story that I had to deal with one company one time, and they're like, and the guy, the sales guy I was dealing with was like, you cannot believe the amount of anti-corruption training I have to go through, you know, to deal with this company. You know, and and um, it, it's a significant, a significant problem, too. Is it, How big of a corruption problem do we have in the United States? Do you? Do you know? So I really look at it on a worldwide basis um, because of my focus is international generally. Uh, $3 trillion is lost annually uh, to the world's economy due right. to bribery and corruption. Yesterday there was a report that fully one in three Pacific Islanders have paid a bribe within the past 12 months wow. that said they did. Wow. So you've got to believe the numbers are, are quite higher. And so it's a still a problem. And it's uh, something that I'm very passionate about. And through my work as a lawyer, my work on the Compliance Podcast Network, I'm trying to fight that international problem. The um, the the biggest one, I think that uh, you know, I get I get a little cynical too. You know, do you ever get yourself in a position where you know it, it feels a little hopeless that you'll ever will be able to solve some of these issues, or do, how do you feel about the future? I guess. So I am very upbeat about the future because businesses see doing business in compliance and ethically as a business plus. And when you can wed a good idea or a good thing with a positive ROI or a profit, that's when businesses take notice. It's sort of like ESG right now. The reason it's doing so well and so important is investors see business opportunities in investing in companies that are ESG positive. Right. You were uh, talking a little bit about um, antitrust um, uh, work, too, as well. And, and uh, the platform that, that I'm, I'm engaged with is obviously Facebook. And you, you've seen, obviously, you know, through your work digitally, you've seen the, um, the power of social media. Do you have a take on where that should go, uh, how that should be handled? Well, I think uh, even Facebook has uh, recognized there needs to be some guardrails, mm-hmm. and that's in the form of regulations. Right. And if we could ever get Congress to sit down with the tech companies, I think the tech companies, uh, in a collaborative effort, could put guardrails in place that everyone could agree upon, yeah. and then we could fill out those regulations, and everyone would know what the playing field is. Right, right now, I just don't think the playing field is well enough to find. I, 
you know, and I've talked about this before. I struggle at times. Like people ask me, like, what is it like, you know, dealing with Facebook? I said, I don't think they really know what they're doing. Sometimes, you know, they've created they've created an ecosystem that is so broad and so powerful that, you know, what are the regulations that need to be, you know, in mind? And I, you know, I, I guess off the top of my head too, it's like I think that they they probably do need to be broken up to a certain degree and having things that are separate, you know, because you look at it like when they went down is a good example. Um, in the third world, WhatsApp is the number one way people people are able to communicate because it's too expensive to make a phone call. So, you know, people are already bypassing the technical side of things. But then you have a company that, that controls messaging across multiple platforms and you, know, you can make a call on Facebook. You can make a call now on WhatsApp, obviously. Um, and Facebook owns both of those platforms, or Meta, I should say, owns both those platforms. But then again, I don't, don't think they ever like thought, you know what, uh, we're a telecommunications company too. Uh, we're a content company. We're this, we're that, you know. So it's a really interesting, and I have no idea. This is where it gets to be really tricky. I have no idea how they slow down the behavioral issues on the platform. And um, that's an interesting question too. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know how you fix that. That's it. So it it's, has to start with a cult, cultural change at the top. Mm -hmm. And once the top uh, makes a decision and communicates that decision, then you put policies and procedures in place to execute that decision. And then you put a, a series of incentives and uh, punishments or penalties in place if you violate mm -hmm. those policies and procedures. You communicate those, and then you continually improve and um, update your compliance program, whatever compliance it might be, throughout uh, the year. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to posit an unpopular idea here. Uh, I've, been, I've been stewing on this for quite some time, but I'm going to share this unpopular idea with you. Uh, and you can, you can, you can slap, slap me in the face if you need to, if it's, if it's that bad. But I have this theory, and I worked in oil and gas for, for a little bit of time, about a year, a little over a year, um, and we had a whole floor dedicated to regulatory, you know, people. You know, air quality, water quality, uh, environmental quality issues because, you know, you're dealing with water issues, obviously. You're dealing with air quality issues. Those people were highly paid, highly educated. And I started thinking to myself, you know, regulation, if it's done right, is actually good for everybody, you know, because you have um, – and, and I never felt like anybody that worked in the regulatory side of the oil and gas industry was, like, evil or trying to, like – do environmental damage, but I, I had this thought that it's like, you know, these people make a lot of money, they're well paid, they contribute to their communities, and they're here. If there was not regulation, they would not have these jobs in the first place. And so my unpopular belief is that that regulation in some ways is actually good for a lot of people. Well, uh, regulation sets the boundaries. Mm -hmm. And the in-house energy company people who work in regulatory, uh, whatever it may be, environmental water, uh, human resources, you name the corporate discipline, if you can change the shift to we're going to put a program in place to detect a violation to we're going to put a program in place to prevent a violation, it's always easier to stop something before it happens, right. and it's more cost-effective. Right. It's a, it's a really interesting um, you know, and that's a big part. It's the cost effectiveness is that the businesses at some point, uh, oil and gas is a good example of this. You know, they would just find guys like, oh, you broke your hand today. We'll find somebody else. But then they started realizing that as the job got more technical, that that safety had to play a paramount role in that in that, that piece of it, too. 
And um, so they had their own sort of internal compliance rules as well. And that has led to, you know, we're not going to have people get hurt. We're not going to have people get killed. That doesn't, that's not good for business. But do all businesses recognize that? You know, I mean, that's, that's the question of the day. Safety is the best example because it le- le- led and leads compliance by 20 years. Right. I also grew up in the energy industry. Yeah. And in the late 80s, there were some catastrophic plant explosions in and around Houston, loss of life of between 25 and 50 people. Uh, safety began to change there, but the linchpin of the change in oil company safety was the Exxon Valdez. Right. And Exxon completely revamped their culture to say safety is number one at all times. And when the number one energy company in the world says that, everybody takes notice. But more importantly, what they said was, Mr. Tom Fox, Mr. Lewis, if you want to do business with us, you have to do business safely. Right. So it drove it down the supply chain, mm-hmm. and that message uh, came across to the point where, uh, in my last energy company uh, job, every meeting was open with a safety moment right. from the executive level down to the plant guys. Mm-hmm. And that's how you drive a message of safety and a culture of safety. Right. And, and this, is the, this has been the, the juxtaposition I've, I've wrestled with this whole time. It's like, you know, um, if you look at Texas, for example, you know, the oil and gas industry is so gigantic. It's so present in our daily lives, obviously. And, and some of the things that we're dealing with here, like when it comes to COVID, you know, um, you have people who are like, oh, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm like, well, they tell you what to do when you go to the oil and gas field. You better have your little air quality monitor on, your hard hat. You know, I remember one time I was, and this is kind of, I, I was kind of anal about this at times. I remember seeing these two clowns. Actually, this is in Colorado. I remember seeing these two clowns putting together a trellis. And they were using a forklift and one ladder. And I'm like, that's not safe. He's not wearing a hard hat. This guy's not safe. I mean, I, I went over to the apartment manager that, where I was living at the time. I said, you're going to have an accident there and someone's going to get killed. Um, and I, I, it's the first time in my life I ever kind of tattled on somebody like that. But I was like, and she was like, oh, my gosh, look, you're right. And she ran out and she stopped him because that's called stop work authority. And you do that in the oil industry when you see things that are unsafe. Um, and it's an interesting, interesting culture for sure. Let's jump back for a second. You know, when you got to Camp Stewart, what was it like in the 60s to go to those camps in Kerrville? Totally 180, 360 degree turn here, but uh, I, I'm, I'm, I hear so many, you know, fond memories of those places. Right. So, uh, although I was born in Houston, I grew up in Bryan, Texas. Okay. And so, coming to Kerrville was an absolute revelation. Mm-hmm. My parents didn't, tra- we didn't take vacations. We right. didn't travel. I'd never seen the mountains. I'd never seen hills. Right. And coming to uh, Camp Stewart outside of Hunt. Uh, the uh, camp itself sits on 500 acres. The Guadalupe goes through it. Joy Bluff is a 500-foot bluff, and I just absolutely fell in love with the rock faces, the terrain, uh, being able to walk around in that sort of outdoor environment, obviously a very outdoor-focused mm-hmm. uh, experience, uh, horse riding and camp crafts and having little boys run around and play. Yeah, right, right. It, it was just fabulous. And then you went back the next year, and you even more fun. <laughs> I, I did. And I went back uh, a second year and uh, did it again, won a few awards. Uh, and for my podcast, mm-hmm. uh, the Hill Country Podcast, I was determined to have Kathy Ragsdale, mm-hmm. who's the matriarch, be my first guest. Yeah. And I emailed her 
and introduced myself and what I wanted to do. And she emailed me back. Oh, I remember you. Your grandfather paid for your first year. <laughs> that was 1967. Oh, my gosh. Can you and, imagine that? Yeah. And so uh, I got to talk to Kathy, and she's just uh, she and her husband, Cy, had bought the camp in earlier 1967. So she was able to give the whole history of Camp Stewart. Next year it'll be 100. Mm-hmm. It leads the camping environment here in the Hill Country, at least led that environment. And uh, it was a fascinating podcast. And camping is still a big part of uh, uh commerce and stories here in the hill country yeah i mean when you see the people that come here to pick up their kids during that period i mean it's just it's just crazy you know like you can't find a hotel room in kerrville during that during that period so it's uh it's an interesting it's an interesting and some of those camps are absolutely gorgeous too right you know absolutely absolutely so when you were looking to relocate out of houston and you came up here you know what, what, were, what were your other options did you have other options or was this was this it in your mind so we were actually, we had a house in Brenham under contract yeah. and we were having a difficult negotiation. So I said to my wife, let's just go look at Kerrville this weekend. Mm-hmm. And so uh, she uh, looked at a house online, called the realtor and the realtor said, oh, uh, do you have anyone representing you? And yeah. she said, no. She said, oh, the guy said, I'll have five houses for you. Come on out Saturday. Come, come, come out, right. And we found one and I told him we'll pay the price they have uh, put up. And he said, I'll have a contract to you by the time you get back to Houston. Nice, nice. So, so uh, you, you basically then have basically relocated. You moved everything here uh, for your, you know, your business is here. You're here. Um, how has it been? Does it feel a little bit more relaxed? Or that's what I like about here. You know, I mean, I've commuted for years and and drove in traffic for years, and so I th- my little my little nine minute drive to work is fabulous every morning. So. So I've worked uh, from home uh, for the last 15 years now, so that part was not new for yeah. me. But this is just, I still think, the most spectacular part of Texas, mm-hmm. one of the most special places on earth. The people are as friendly as any other place I've ever lived. I love the weather here. Uh, I get to do things that uh, I haven't ever done. And my wife and I, every weekend, go explore some new town, some new restaurant, mm-hmm. some new antique store. And we're just uh, really enjoying our time here yeah. in the greater hill country. Right. That's the one thing that people ask me about the time. I said, isn't it hot there? I'm like, wait a minute. I, we lived in Bakersfield, California for, for, for seven years. It's hotter than hell there. Uh, and, and the humidity here is not, in, at least in the hill country. I mean, there's, a, there's, there's those moments, but it's nothing like, like Houston or having storms. Or, I mean, we've had our fair share of storms. We don't have hurricanes, though. Right. Right. Uh, so, yeah. No I'm, humidity. Uh, you uh what what is 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 houston just is it ever going to get righted is it going to be continually be just be a big mess throughout the throughout i mean i haven't really spent any time there so i don't know but it just sounds like it's a hodgepodge it's booming it's what is houston explain it to me so other, other uh, than the fact that the evil houston astros are there but that's another story <laughs> really there. the uh You've talked to me about coming from California and seeing many of the experiences there now beginning to percolate here. It's only used Los Angeles as an example. Mm -hmm. Houston has 4 million people in its greater Harris County area. Harris County is huge, 50 miles wide. But it is now ringed with suburbs, ringed with suburbs, ringed with suburbs. And so all of these are different municipalities. So they have different political cross-purses cross-purposes they have different economic cross-purposes uh they're all different and it's going to become just this huge polyglot of different towns and so unless they can somehow consolidate 
or keep things going uh, through the Harris County government as opposed to the city of Houston government. It may go the way of Los Angeles and just be beyond belief huge, but more importantly, fragmented in a way that can't be fixed. Yeah. Yeah. Los Angeles is a great example of one of the things I tell people when we go to Los Angeles is that um, you'll go to downtown, right? Where, you know, and you'll see how the city, you'll basically get a good example of how the city exploded outward because it's, it's like a time capsule of architecture downtown that's totally boarded up. Right. But if you expand out towards Century City in West Los Angeles, it's newer, it's more modern, you know. But um, And that, that's the way that it, it worked. And the growth in those periods was just stunning. But now you got 10 million people that live in Los Angeles County, um, probably more than that. But it's, it, it, it's created a really, uh, some really profound problems, you know, uh, with housing, with transportation, with air quality, with water. Um, and, uh, you know, I actually think the, the, the bigger issue in Texas is going to be the connection between Austin and San Antonio, you know, becoming one super city, basically, right. you know. So I was in Houston during the snowpocalypse, mm-hmm. and uh, we've had cold spells before. We've lost power before. Mm-hmm. But the thing that really irritated me was the boil notice. Yeah. Uh, I, it just infuriates me to no end that we can't have clean water. And right. for six days, we didn't have clean water right. in Houston. Yeah, I mean, the every it's amazing The one thing about the storm, though, is we all have this sort of shared... Um, I was working up in Greenville for five months. I mean, they, they were... It devastated their roads. You know, they have cr- kind of crappy roads already to begin with because of some soil issues and some construction issues. But, I mean, it just ruined. I mean, it cost them millions of dollars in not only in the, in the utility costs, but in the, in the road mm-hmm. construction as well. And so every, it seems like every city in there is kind of has a shared, <laughs> a shared trauma from the uh, from snowpocalypse for sure. Right. Um, the, the, the future of your podcast here, uh, who do you have in mind? Who do you want to talk to? And, 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 and what's next? So uh, on the Hill Country podcast today, I have a part one of a two-part series with Daryl uh, Beecham from oh, good. the Museum of Western Art. Right. And uh, if you've ever talked to Daryl, mm-hmm. uh, you know what a special guy he is, and he will talk your ear off. And he did that for me, so I split it up into two parts. Uh, you're going to be on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Don Frazier from uh, Shriner University yep. is going to talk about the Texas Institute. Greg Walcott, a local uh, lawyer who's been practicing here for about 15 years. But I just want to tell the stories. Right. And if you want to tell your story, I want to put you on the Hill Country Podcast. The uh, Beecham and, um, and, and Frazier, I've never had them in the same space together. Um, Frazier will be on the show on Friday. But uh, Beecham, you know, we, we've had many. I love Western art. And he has the ability of being a Western art aficionado, one of the great Western art aficionados in the country. Uh, if you look at his, his resume, um, I shouldn't say even aficionado, experts is what he is. And, uh, and then you also look at his background as a Civil War curator and, and historian and, and a librarian. I mean, it's a pretty significant uh, thing. What, what stood out to you in your conversation with him? Uh, really the breadth and scope of his knowledge, what he's done here for the museum in Kerrville, but I'm a professor's kid. Mm-hmm. So anybody that comes out of the educational yeah. environment, right. I want to talk to, and he came out of that. He didn't start out as a museum type or a curator type. He sort of fell into that role. Not only did he embrace it, he has done fabulously well with it. And the museum won 
you know, one of the top awards or top five museums in the country for Western art yep. under his tutelage. So um, he's a fascinating character. And he ran the number one art museum on that list, by the way. He ran that one previously, too. That was the Russell Museum. I believe it's in Montana. Yes. And um, and so, yeah, he's he's really I'm always bugging about things, too. Like, we're going to do this. We can do that. <laughs> So the, the thing about both of those guys that struck me, both Don and Daryl, was <clears throat> whatever the controversies uh, currently involved in history, their response is, let's have a conversation. Right. You say I did something wrong. Let's have a conversation. Explain to me what I got wrong mm-hmm. and let's incorporate your ideas into our next exhibit. Right. And that's what we need. Right. Have you uh, w- had you been up to that museum before you moved here? Uh, yes. I went to the museum uh, in the late 80s. I yeah. came out here for the folk festival once. Oh, did you? Yes. Okay. Well, there you go. You, you know, you got the museum to me. When I first went into that, I was like, "Whoa, look at this thing! This is this. Is, whoa, look at this!" You know, I got inside. You know, and you see the the. Have you been there? You've been there, right? The museum, Western Art. Mm-hmm. Um, Bell Bell's Bell's just looking at me like, "What are you talking about?" Um, you need to interview Bella, by the way. She's one of the best ones. Okay. Um, Bella does Bella does some pretty cool photographic stories and she's she's inspired me a couple times to do some things um the the biggest thing with um you know you see what's happening here uh in the momentum when you look at as an outsider coming in and as a texan coming in here kerrville and kerr county it is is headed where what do you what do you, what is your what is your sort of forecast or when you tell other people about the area what do you what do you think well, the first thing I tell them is it, the beauty. It is just stunningly beautiful, right. I think. Uh, number two is the people. Uh, I cannot emphasize how friendly everyone has been. It, it's probably been 50 years since someone called me pumpkin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it just happened twice right. uh, in commercial establishments. And everyone has been very helpful. We've had a, a, a series of renovations to our house. All the guys have been just great. And the... Um, the thing, I've joined the West Kerr County Chamber of Commerce, okay. and I recently joined the Kerr County, or excuse me, Kerrville Chamber of Commerce, is the business environment here. Right. Uh, I see people who can start up their own businesses. Uh, Robbie over at Clawson is just one I happen to know because I have a lot of IT issues. Right. You know, and he started a local business here. You've come here. I've come here. And there's just opportunities for these organic little growth uh, or places to grow in ways that we would not have had an opportunity in a right. larger uh, establishment, and we get to do things we love. Right, and 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 there's there's so much positive momentum, you know, when it when it comes to that. And that business environment is is there. There's a lot of interesting people who are coming here to do business too, yourself included. Um, when you kind of, I was, I was struck by one thing you said too that you didn't travel. You were a professor's kid. You didn't travel. Nope. What, what was your dad a professor of? Engineering. Oh, so <laughs> you sat around doing math problems, didn't you? I didn't. I'm not the math <laughs> one in the family. That's why I'm a lawyer. That's right. <laughs> the um, when you grew up in Texas in the in in the in the '60s and stuff, what was that like? What was it like to be here? You know. So I grew up in Bryan, Texas, mm-hmm. uh, Bryan College Station, cultural center and megalopolis of Central Texas, home of Texas A&M University the center of then conservatism in Texas. Yeah. My parents were very conservative. I went to segregated schools until I was in high school. Uh, so it was that, that kind of environment. Right. Uh, but because my parents were teachers, um, they, uh, education was very much a part of our household, and they insisted I learned to, to 
read, speed read, study uh, books. I became, uh, and uh, when I interviewed Don Frazier, I told him I built my first Alamo model in the fifth grade. Uh, I absolutely love Texas history. And it was a great learning environment. It was a small town, you know, right. football on Friday nights, the, the whole Texas night scene. Right. And, and um, it's interesting how Texas has sort of evolved. I mean, uh, my first experience was sort of the remnants of segregation was up in Greenville. I mean, like it was very present, you know, still, you know, some of the things that had happened there, you know, previously. They're still wrestling with some of their identity, uh, and yet there was a lot of progress being made in sort of rectifying um, some of those th- some of those issues uh, previously. It's an interesting state, and um, I- I'm I'm fascinated by the growth, uh, and I and I don't think you can necessarily. There was actually, and I've I've reported this before myself, and and Text Monthly hit upon it again as well. The growth isn't necessarily coming from California. It's coming from international places. The Asian population is rising. You see that in, in Houston. Houston's now one of the most ethnically diverse, if not the most ethnically diverse city in the country now. Actually, it is the most ethnically yeah. diverse, yes. And the, originally in the late uh, mid to late 70s, a huge influx of Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. Uh, now there's a very large Indian population. There's an India town. Uh, in Houston, uh, Chinatown uh, right. was originally in downtown, and now they've moved to the west suburbs, and there's a huge component of Chinese, South Asians, uh, Pakistanis as well, uh, and everything in between. Yeah, um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting, interesting mix because that, that is, like, I think it was 40% of, of immigration from uh, – uh, into Texas came from outside of the United States, and a majority of that was from either the Asian subcontinent or from Asia, from China or uh, Taiwan or the Philippines. I mean, it was very interesting to hear how many people are coming here and and why. And you talk to people, you know, like, well, it just you know, it just fits, you know, it just works for me, and and they're comfortable here. Uh, and so Houston seems to be a tremendous melting pot. How do you how do you see that working out in Houston? Well, in Houston, uh, I took a ride uh, to the airport with an Uber driver mm-hmm. from Nigeria, and he was I was watching him look at properties as we drove to the airport. And I finally said, you're really focusing on these properties and not driving. What's going on? Yeah. He goes, uh, oh, I'm investing in real estate. <laughs> and he used his Uber driving yeah. to make some money, obviously, but it, it, he learned more about the city. And he's a perfect example of the Houston immigrant. Right. Houston does not care where you came from, what your religion is, who you may worship or not worship. All they care about is, are you a hard worker? Right. And if you're a hard worker, you're not only going to be ex- respected, but you'll be accepted into the city of right. Houston. And you can create whatever you want for yourself. Um, th- it also changes the food scene, too, probably in Houston a little bit when you have that kind of diversity. So you probably had a chance to... I mean, you know, I mean, I worked in Bakersfield, which had a significant Indian population, a significant Thai population, and um, Indian restaurants were all over the place. It was great, you know. <laughs> so I can't eat it anymore, but it's, it was great. So uh, my wife is English, so Indian food is high on her priority high on list. Her priority. And that, if there's one thing I could say about Kerrville, someone please come and bring a great curry house here. Yeah, uh, a little bit of a little bit of curry and naan go a long ways into making. Uh, making your day a little bit better, a little jasmine rice too. It's so good. Um, it's interesting to talk about this as well because, you know, we, we, we face, um, uh, 
you know, one of the things I, li- I like about Texas is that it's incredibly convenient. You know, you think about Texas being, um, you know, so gigantic and it's like, ah, oh, it takes hours. But, you know, you can be in Dallas in five hours from here. You could be in Houston, what, three or four hours from here. You could be in San Antonio in an hour, Austin in two hours. I mean, so, like, being here is convenient. There's a lot of things to, to, to see and do in Texas. And I, I, at the end of the day, I think that's one of the things that we forget about, too, is that there is a, there is a spectacular sort of convenience and beauty to the state that, uh, that it transcends, you know, party or politics or faith or whatever it may be that I, I find to be very, very, uh, you know, inviting. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so once again, since I never traveled and did anything yeah, right. when I was growing up, yeah. I was on a, completely unaware of the state park system yeah. in the state of Texas, which is just fabulous. You mentioned I'm a lawyer. One time I went on a trek to go see the 254 county courthouses oh, wow. in the state of Texas. Did you get all of them? I got all of them. Wow. Because there's a book about that. <laughs> right, right. And, uh, but you can go to state parks. I love old Catholic missions. Yeah. Or even old Catholic churches. Yeah. Obviously, San Antonio is uh, the oldest uh, Catholic city in the state of Texas. And so uh, lots of little interesting little churches. But, uh, and even here in towns in the hill country, which uh, were founded by uh, Catholic uh, religious orders, we've got a, a lot of really interesting, uh, even in Medina, mm-hmm. we went down there and saw a really interesting little Catholic church. And I just love all, exploring all you of You know, those. the one that stands out in my mind, obviously, Fredericksburg's got a great one, but um, the, the, the one in Castroville. Right. Which is, I think, is it, is it Huguenots? Or, I mean, it's, it's uh, or no, it's Alsatians were the ones that founded that little town. And, and, and it's such a, I mean, it's like, wait, where, where, where am I? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does not feel, it does not feel like America in some ways. It feels European, you know, it's, it's fascinating, you know. Well, even in this part of Texas, I mean, Shriner, mm-hmm. I think uh, the Shriner family was Alsatian mm-hmm. or French, but up through New Braunfels, Seguin, yeah. the German communities that right. founded um, those cities, uh, a wide variety of Schulenburg, Schinerbach beer, right. all of those German influences. Yeah. Yeah, uh, part of my uh, family history, um, uh, you know, I have I have Texas roots, and so my my great grandmother on my father's side, she, they came to Texas. I, I my understanding is that they had a family tragedy in Mexico, and um, lost uh, lost their. Uh, I think it was they had like either cholera or typhoid or some kind of some kind of bug, you know, attacked them basically. And they were basically left. My, my great-grandmother and my great-great-grandmother were left without any kind of support. And the, the, the best place for them to come was Texas to go to San Antonio to be a part of the German community. And that's where my great-grandmother met my great-grandfather, um, who was Mexican. And that's how they got, that's how they got together. But, they, but my dad always – so, like, my grandfather spoke German. And my one of my great aunts was very, very was fluid in German because that's what they spoke, you know, even though they were this kind of mixed, you know, mixed family. So, uh, but I, th- I believe also my great mother also spoke Spanish because there was a lot of stories about them being in Mexico and and Guatemala and other places. So, the German experience in the in the New World is fascinating. It is, and so many of those Germans who immigrated to Texas came after failed revolutions mm-hmm. in Germany in 1832 and 1848, and they were very active politically. Yeah. And so it created some uh, uh, very uh, unfortunate tensions and dynamics around the Civil War yeah. because they were big Federalist 
Um, so, but a, a great part of the Texas tradition as well. It's a, it's a, it's a really, um, and you look at the demographics, even here, you know, even here in, 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 in Kerrville, you see it really much more in New Braunfels still and, and in, uh, and in Fredericksburg, especially, you know, that the deep, you know, identification with German culture and, and, you know, there's still German street names and people probably still speak the language there as well. It's pretty fascinating. So there's a worst house in Fredericksburg and not one in Kerrville. Well, what's up with that? I mean, come on now, you know. I mean, uh, we got to get that fixed, right? We got there's a lot of things. There's nothing better than good German food. So, uh, uh, the the last thing I want to ask you to let's go back to your 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 website. It looks like my it looks like David Payne's not going to join us this morning. That's okay. I'll get back with him. He'll be here eventually. Um, it's he's a pastor. He probably had something important going on. He probably had something that he needed. To, he's he is a gigantic church uh, at First United Methodist. Um, but we're having a great conversation with Tom Fox. He runs the podcast, the Compliance Podcast Network. And um, when you look at some of the things in innovation, um, what, what stands out in your mind? You know, in, in some of the things you're, you're kind of you're you're looking at and discussing. So what I see is, and really the pandemic drove this home, mm-hmm. was data and the use of data. Right. Obviously, data has been around a long time, but you one have to be able to capture it. And in the corporate world. Data is typically siloed. Compliance has data. Finance has data. HR has data. Everyone has data. Mm -hmm. But no one really cuts across. So, interestingly, the regulators have told us, yes, the compliance function has to cut across all that data. Well, once you have unified data, then you can begin to uh, look at it. And that's where AI and machine learning come in because they can find essentially patterns in raked leaves. You and I probably couldn't see the patterns. And as a lawyer, if I'm uh, uh, asked to look at numbers, I'm completely lost. Right. But if, if some other resource to me, either a human resource, data engineer, or a machine learning or AI can help me, then I be- can begin to see problems, and we can move away from that, simply detect a problem mm-hmm. to prevent a problem. Now uh, take that to, to all businesses, right. you know, sales, planning, development, forecasting. If you can begin to start to use the power of the data that's within your company, you're going to make yourself more efficient and at the end of the day more profitable. I remember one time sitting through um, a Salesforce presentation, or I was actually doing Salesforce training. And if you don't know, if you guys don't know about Salesforce, I mean, it's a monster. And, um, you know, they're, a, they're a, a customer relationship marketing tool, but they're so much broader than that and so much bigger than that. Machine learning, AI, all part of what they're doing. It's very, very advanced. If you really start to drill into it, they're buying up pieces. They're, 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 they're adapting their the technology as well. And I remember sitting through this thing myself, like being a newspaper person for a long time, thinking, you know, we really blew this. We did not get this done correctly uh, because we always siloed that data. We had advertising data, we had circulation data, and the truth of the matter is in the digital world, we should have gone this direction where that data was center of our business and defined our strategies, but we did not, we did not get a chance to do that. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting how that works. And I, like, for my piece, I just wrote about this to Facebook the other day. They asked me, like, why do you, why do you charge, why do you charge um, for aver- why do you charge for subscribers, right? And I said... To me, it's the most important data point that we have to measure the success of what we're doing because that still matters most to that. But data plays a big role in how, I, in how I'm trying to form my business and how I'm trying to form my audience here. Uh, and I don't know all the, noise, know the answers. 
<laughs> I wish there was someone smarter than me helping me, but but uh, it's it, it's it's a it's a fascinating role and how it and how it helps define where you're where you're headed. So and really the other thing if we got from the pandemic is the reason you and I are sitting here today, yeah. which was you can do what you love from anywhere. So exactly. I have a worldwide compliance podcast network from Kerrville, Texas. You're down here broadcasting every day on the lead and delivering, uh, you know, quality journalism on an online platform daily to the citizens of Kerrville and Kirk County. And 18 months ago, that may have not been may, possible. May, may not have been possible because we needed to have, we were still, you know, as soon as the pandemic expedited so much of what we were talking about too, you know, like it seemed to like usher in, I mean, if you look at the winners of the pandemic financially, it's Amazon, you know, it's it's online things. It's Zoom. It's it's those 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 platforms that were sort of in. They were sort of like thought about, then became essential. And right. and that's that's where we're at here with this today. Okay, thank you so much, Tom, for being here. His website is the Compliance Podcast Network. Let me show it to you one more time because there's just like I don't I don't even know how you even do it all. I mean, I thought I'd put out a lot of content, then I came then I came across you. My God, look at this stuff. Look at all this stuff. It's kind of awesome. Uh, I'm, 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 this is the uh, innovation and compliance has got one I'm going to have to listen to. The other one that caught my eye is the Content Coalition. What's that one about? So that is a company that helps uh, creators create content for social media. Okay. So they'll take a podcast that I've recorded and create uh, audiograms and different type of content I can use in short, shorter snippets on social media. Right. That's a great. That's a great service then too. Uh, the nine eleven podcast. You said this meant something to you specifically. What was the what was the uh, biggest uh, thing that drove you on this project? Um, the every one of the people I interviewed either lived in New York. I didn't realize at this time lived in New York, lived in Washington, and had a personal experience on nine eleven. Yeah. From you know evacuating uh, the lower, lower Manhattan. Some people had to do that. Uh, one guy. Uh, who was at the CIA at the time, was on his way at the White House and saw the plane hit the Pentagon yeah. as he was driving. But the most powerful one was a guy named John Lee Dumas, who on 9-11 was a college senior in ROTC in Providence College. And he said that night, he and his roommate said, we're going to war. Wow. And he went from thinking, I'm in ROTC, I'll go in the Army for four years, I'll get out. Uh, to knowing, I don't know where, but I'm going to war in the next six months. Wow. Powerful, powerful stuff for sure. Uh, all right, everybody, listen, here's the deal. Uh, check out his website at the Podcast Compliance Network, and uh, we appreciate you being here uh, as always. And uh, I want to just hit upon one other uh, quick thing for tomorrow's show. We're at Delane's house tomorrow. Uh, it's going to be awesome. She's going to cook for us, and uh, we're, we're looking forward to that uh, tomorrow. It's going to be, uh, and then Friday, we have a full show. It's going to be a two-hour show on Friday. Katie Graham will be here uh, on Friday. Uh, we're going to have uh, the Salvation Army will be here uh, to talk about Missy Romack, I think her name is, is the major over there at the Salvation Army. She will be here. And then the last hour, we're going to give it to Don Frazier. He'll be here for an hour. We're talking, we, who knows, we'll go. And, I, well, they just had a big John Bell Hood uh, symposium um at uh at uh shriner last weekend i believe a, a, a seminar about john bell hood who of course was um the, the confederate general um who famously was mauled at at uh and severely wounded at gettysburg 
probably one of the most aggressive commanders. You could also maybe argue he might be one of the dumbest commanders, too. At least that's what some of the, the federal generals thought of him. But Don will be here to talk about that. Um, Hood's name is still a major part of our daily lives here in Texas. And there's a move now to remove his name from, the, from, from Fort Hood as well. So we'll talk about that with Don. So much to talk about next week, too. Like I said, Chief Eric Maloney will be here to tell you how not to burn your house down at Thanksgiving. We might ask Chief McCall to come on as, as well so he can tell you now, why, why it is not advantageous to drink heavily at Thanksgiving because you might run yourself into some problems. Talk about compliance. Comply with us. Don't drink and drive, and don't set your house on fire with turkey. Uh, and then next Tuesday, uh, oh, we're going to have the folks from, um, from uh, Cartwheels will be on here. Um, so we're looking forward to that, and uh, it'll be good. So we're going to talk about all that next week, and then a week from tomorrow, Thursday, we'll return to cooking. We will be live from the crock on Thursday for Thanksgiving. And tomorrow, though, you're not going to miss it. It's going to be Delane's house. We're going to have a gigantic party going to be there. It's going to be awesome. Looking forward to it. And uh, we will see you guys again uh, uh, real soon, tomorrow uh, at 9 o'clock. Be there. We want you guys to be there with us. Thanks a lot for joining us. We'll see you tomorrow. Line, you know what you in for, yeah. And I love how you move that thing around. Girl, I need another round. Looking like you want it now. Hit me when it's going down. And when you're trying to get wild, girl, it's alright. You can be shy, but I know just what you like. Yeah.